This podcast is created and produced by Innovator. If you're looking to cut back or eliminate hot work on your next job, or for all of your industrial services needs, visit innovator.ca. Hello and welcome to the Industrial Innovators Podcast, hosted by founder and CEO of Innovator, Don Cooper. My name is Wyatt McPherson, I produce this show, and this week we have a very special guest, the General Manager of Innovator, Chris Coombs, on to talk with Don all about industrial leak repair. It is a very technical but very good conversation between Don and Chris that I do believe you will all gain much insight and maybe even learn a thing or two about industrial leak repair during. As always, you can learn more or get in contact with Don or Chris anytime at innovator.ca. Now, with all of that said, let's get on with the show. Good day, everyone. This is Don Cooper, and this is the Industrial Innovators Podcast. Today, I've got one of our, uh, my second in command, and uh, one of Innovators' own, Chris Coombs, with us today. And we're going to be talking about leak repair services. Welcome, Chris. Hey, Don. How are you doing today? I am doing wonderful. It is a beautiful day, and we're starting to see phase two of the reopening of the economy and society starting, I think, today. I saw announcements that swimming pools and movie theaters are uh, starting to open up, and I think um, even restaurants are going to soon, if not right away, be uh, at full capacity. So some some next steps in the in uh, normalcy seem to be coming back to the world. Yeah, definitely. I was um, looking at that phase two and, and selfishly, they've got arenas and rec centers in there. Now I'm not ready to, to lace up the skates and, and go out with a bunch of sweaty men on my, on my rec hockey team yet. Um, I think that might be jumping the gun a little bit, but it's nice to see that sort of stuff coming back. Um, I do miss it. Uh, you know, that, that's a big part of my unwinding time in the evenings and, and just, it, it does get back to a sense of normal. So I'm looking forward to it. Throughout the entire, uh, coronavirus episode, um, I've been uh, timestamping our podcast to, to, uh, keep people who listen to this, you know, a year or two or 10 years down the road, um, contextualized in the time frame. So we're recording this one uh, on June 10th. So uh, it's been about three months since uh, this has all uh, happened and uh, started to happen and now um, moving back to some sense of new normal. So June 10th, 2020, I think uh, around March 11th is when schools and whatnot in Canada started to shut down. So it's been... uh, uh, March, April, May, and June. So about, about, just about 90 days. Wow. Yeah. So Chris, let's talk about leak repair. Excellent. Well, so we're talking about on-stream leak repair services, and, and this is um, industrial on-stream leak repair. Most of our audience will understand that, but you know, when you, uh, when you do a Google search on leak repair, most of the time it shows up talking about how to fix your, your, your plumbing inside your house. And uh, more often than not this time of year, if I type in leak repair in Google, it tells me how to fix a swimming pool. <laughs> so <laughs> this is something very, very different. And um, why don't you just explain to our audience 
what is leak repair services? Like what, what, what is it we're talking about? Absolutely. So like you said, leak repair can have a variety of meanings. So it's best to try and frame it or explain it from the industrial perspective, the, the service in sense that Innovator offers. Um, and that is online leak repair, um, the, the stopping or suppressing of leaks in any type of process piping, pressurized vessel, um, pressurized piping. So the, the, the stoppage or suppression of a leak to just allow the continuation of that piece of equipment to operate. And that's the main goal of online leak repair. An interesting, an interesting thought on leak repair, um, when you think about the word repair, it carries a, a, a different definition in our industry. In, uh, in a construction industry, when, when we say we're gonna repair something, it has an alternative meeting where there's a regulatory process to follow and there, there's certain things that must be accomplished. We use leak repair very common, um, but in most cases, we're not repairing a leak. Repairing the leak is more of a construction activity, more of a permanent solution. When we talk about leak repair, we're stopping and suppressing. And I think that's the main difference that may get people confused when they hear the term online leak repair versus what actually happens. Right. You know, we're, we're not fixing it permanently. We're effectively, we're suppressing. A lot of clients will call it um, uh, leak containment. You know, a leak containment device or an LCD is, is a, a common client term for how they refer to it. But it, uh, you know, the, these are, you know, these types of methods, and there's a, a variety of, of methods. Some of them are engineered uh, leak containment devices, and some of them are what, what we would call out-of-the-truck repairs, um, all of which are designed to suppress the leak, to allow the to contain, you know, keep the pressure and the, and the process in the pipe and to uh, help the client keep operating, right? Exactly. And, you know, when I think about, I, I use the term leak repair um, predominantly. That, that's the term. I, I understand yeah. that it's suppression and containment, but I choose to use the term leak repair. And we, we're not necessarily addressing the source of the leak. And, and that's why I highlight that. The, the pinhole in your piping that caused the leak in the first place is still there. Uh, we haven't repaired that pinhole with most online leak repair services. There are services that we could. Um, that's still there. We've just contained that leak, eliminate any hazards, loss of production, and allow, allow our clients to continue their operation. So tell me a little bit about the history. Where did leak repair come from? Like what's the, uh what's the history of this in terms of, of pressurized systems? I, um, you know, my experience with leak repair, you know, it has only been, you know, we'll say in the, the 15 year range. So to, to really think about where it came from, like I put on my research hat and, and, and I do some digging and it was actually, it actually came from the invention of the steam engine and, and which is not, if you think about it, it makes total sense because a large process or a process stream that we quite often encounter is steam. And with the invention of the steam engine and, and uh, you know, we've improved how we can build, you know, 
pressure piping, how we can build these components over the last hundreds, over the last, you know, century. Um, so you can imagine in the, in the inception, in, in, the, in the beginning, there was, there was multiple leaks. There was way more leaks than there is now. And they needed a way to keep those engines operating. Um, loss of steam meant loss of pressure, loss of effectiveness. So leak repair was developed um, with, the, with the kind of the introduction of the steam engine. That's interesting because if you think about it, you know, you do any history about our modern society and, uh, and the industrial revolution is what created our modern society. The start of the, uh, the industrial modern society was, um, was the steam engine. It was the beginning of industrialization. Yeah. And then immediately, you know, as different types of um, process facilities were constructed, you know, in that industrial revolution, immediately the need for um, suppressing leaks and continued operation, I'm sure it was evident on, on startup day one, um, that need arose and leak repair, I would have to say just like, you know, any other great innovation um, was born out of necessity. You know, I, I did some research on this uh, a, a number of years ago, and and I and I I stumbled across obviously talk, talk about the steam engine. There's there's another element of of things that we do in leak repair to uh, to find ways to mitigate leaks that actually predates uh, steam. And I wouldn't say it's a um, it's not a leak suppression um, pressure control. Uh, suppression uh, method, but the stopgap that we, we refer to as the stopgap, we use it to stop a leak. If we're doing composite wrap, we often will stop or slow down a leak before we try to install um, uh, other leak containment devices. But the stopgap comes from the age of sailing ships. Okay. So more like patching a hole on a, I guess you, you have a hull or a sail, I, I'm guessing one or the other. No, no. The, on wooden ships, they had gaps in the wood and they had to use, um, they had to use bitumen and cord to stop gap the leaks that happened between the wood. And they would pound um, cord and, uh, and, and oil soaked products in, 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 in between each piece of oak to, uh, you know, to create those, uh, the gap, you know, to, to, to stop the leak in those gaps. <clears throat> and literally the term stop gap comes from the age of, of the great sailing ships. That's, uh, that is very interesting. Uh, um, we don't need to go down this road because we've got a much more sophisticated, you know, engineered backed process these days. But the, um, the hammering of wooden pins or dowels is probably something that you've seen or heard of even in our, you know, petrochemical industry. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've been involved in leak repair since 1994. That makes me old. Um, but, uh, you know, in those days, clients, you know, leak repair was still... I would say used, but not common. Um, and, you know, maintenance, maintenance workers inside of most industrial facilities had to use the tools that they had to mitigate leaks as best as they could. And when, when the, some of those homemade mitigation tools didn't work, then we would get called in with more 
more sophisticated solutions. And I've, I've found uh, rubber hoses tied around leaks and uh, wooden, wooden uh, pegs and screws and pieces of sheet metal. And, uh, yeah. You know, uh, a thing that I've seen a lot was um, you take a, um, and this, I haven't seen this in a lot of years, but I, I saw it a lot in the early 90s was uh, you would take a, an insulator, like a, a sheet metal insulator, and they would build a sheet metal box around something, and then they would try to fill it with uh, with some sort of epoxy or resin to uh, to uh, to to mitigate the leak somehow. I saw a lot of those methods. Then a lot of those methods I, I I've seen longer play out longer, particularly in the pulp and paper industries, in uh, that where uh, maybe where the uh, the the budgets compared to some oil and gas facilities were not as robust, and they were. Uh, being a little more prudent on costs, they uh, they've had a lot more uh, creative homemade methods, and I've I've kind of seen it. I've kind of seen a lot of it. So, yeah. but you know, I think I think over, <clears throat> and we've seen we we've been living through the evolution of leak repair as um, art and into science, even over the last um, uh, the last five or ten years with regulatory bodies putting their own processes and controls in place to, to uh, kind of put a box around and to, to, to use a pun to put a box around how we're going to, how the industry is going to do leak repair. So I think it's constantly evolving and, and, and we're still in, we're still involved in, in regulatory processes to uh, constantly improve how we're going to approach other kinds of leak repair as well. So I think it's, it's always evolving. Mm -hmm. You know, what, um, when, it, when we're talking about clients in leak repair, what are their applications that are best suited for leak repair? There's, there's definitely a wide range of applications, but to really, I guess, to, to kind of narrow it in, before we start talking about different piping systems, different fittings and things like that in a facility, you're really targeting areas that are not, you don't have a built-in you know, isolation or redundancy in isolation. You know, if you have the ability to quickly isolate a leaking component, um, you know, some facilities have replacement fittings on their shelf and they can, they can isolate, jump in, swap out a valve, put a new one back on, and you can do that in a couple of hours if it's a bolted connection. Um, so there's, there's, you know, the same valve that we might have to perform leak repair on, it might not be because of the valve construction, right? It has to do with how the piping system was designed. Does it have isolation? It's sometimes it's the isolation valve itself that is supposed to be the thing preventing, you know, helping them get through a leak that we're actually fixing. So when we talk about the best applications, we look at situations where the client they don't have an ability to isolate the leak. So now they have something that's uncontained. That could be a pinhole or wall loss in pressure piping. Um, very often we see valve leaks. So steam leaks on a valve in a packing, that's something that's very often, we see very often. And any fittings in general, threaded fittings have a tendency to leak. Um, weld, you know, welded fittings may have porosity or different <laughs> defects built into the weld. So there are definitely 
any type of piping system or fitting is subject to leak repair. The ones that are best suited for our clients are ones that they don't have the ability to isolate themselves and they need that containment to maintain production. You know, um, it's, there's a reason I think, I mean, it's a cost reason why clients don't have isolation everywhere. I've often seen, uh, you know, when a, when a client builds a small um, demonstration or pilot plant, they'll, they'll build in a lot more isolating capability because it's a smaller footprint, it's a lot less piping, and they'll have a lot of redundancies built in. And then when they commercialize the plant and they scale it up, it, uh, they, you know, from a, from a design standpoint, they just need to start removing a lot of uh, capital intensive assets like, you know, gate valves everywhere that'll allow them a lot more ability to isolate everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so you go to in, into an upgrader uh, or a new refinery. And we've, we've seen in the last 20 years, several upgraders and, and one new refinery uh, built in, um, in, in Western Canada in, in the last, 10, 15 years, 20 years, I guess, since uh, we had this uh, boom of upgrader builds. And um, what always seems to happen, as soon as they start the facility up, they've spent billions of dollars to get it built, but they've had to strip, you know, tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars of redundancies out of their capital plan to be able to get project sanction. And as they start you know, in the first year when they start up, they start to realize they, they're missing isolations, they're, uh, they're springing leaks, and, uh, and they face having to take a multi-billion dollar asset and shut it down to fix all this stuff. And that's obviously not, uh, not prudent in terms of trying to get a return on their investment, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But so, some of the biggest jobs I've done in terms of leak mitigation and or isolation mitigation have been in the first year of startup of facilities. Um, brand, brand new equipment, but uh, you, know, th you know, things go, th design things happen and uh, they get uh, pressure system uh, differences or metallurgical things that they didn't expect and things erode and corrode. I mean, we had a client just last year, brand new mine, and uh, the particular chemistry of their uh, of their of their water system was incompatible with their with their weld material, and they were having welds eaten away very quickly. Totally unexpected in design, but uh, you know they had to keep the place running, right? Yeah, absolutely, that's a good example of a newer facility, and you know something that I'm sure we'll talk about a little later. That is leak repair. There, there is welds that are springing leaks or welds that they've identified that are going to right it's not always about having a leak it sometimes our clients are calling us in because they have a, a predictive and preventive maintenance program that allows them to identify components that will leak and then we can right. perform leak repair on those as well so you know in innovator we have we have what we call service lines and we offer online leak repair as a service line and we offer composite repair as a service line. In general, you know, composite repairs is a leak repair in, in, a, in a broader sense. So in that case, you're describing, you know, the leak repair method that we employed or we deployed was composite wrap to, to help them through that. Um, you know, there's, there's definitely different ways to looking at leak repair when you look at it from a high level. Right. 
So if customers are not utilizing leak repair or not leveraging it as, as much as they could, how are they addressing leaks? Like what's their traditional approach to, uh, to uh, leak mitigation? I've seen, so I've seen a lot of different things. Um, so we'll try and go through some examples. The first thing that is typically happening is they try it themselves. And that's usually what we will see is you'll see an attempt at, at um, some off the shelf, you know, and I, I, I even hesitate to use composite and, and I'm sometimes I refer to it as tape. Um, you know, there'll be some off the shelf tape or composite product that they'll install. They, they have their own kind of DIY um, stop gaps that, that they'll install. And success in those cases is leak mitigation to a certain extent. It, it never seems to be 100%. Uh, I see a lot of facilities when they're doing it on their own focus on diverting the leak. So they mitigate the safety risk. They get that process stream going somewhere where they can control it, but they're still losing it. So they're still losing that, the cost of that product leaking through their facility, they're still losing it. So, I mean, I think they have three options. If they're not leveraging an experienced contractor, they really have three options. They're doing it themselves. And we can tell you, you know, there's a lot of experience that's required. You know, the competency for a successful online leak repair technician is, is as high as any service line um, that we offer in the specialty maintenance industry. So when you're performing it yourself with somebody who doesn't necessarily have the experience, there's a lot of risk there. And, and you usually would end up in a leak, continuing to leak. Um, they have the do nothing factor where, where they kind of just let it leak. And then I, I see a lot of times they'll, they'll try and divert the leak. And and some of those sheet metal enclosures that you referred to, I see those in remaining open atmosphere. So they don't build pressure. So they didn't worry about the engineering calculations and they just divert that to a drain or, or to a safe location, maybe to a drum or something like that, depending on the chemical and, and continue their operations. And that's typically what I see when they're not using um, a leak repair service. I'll, I'll kind of touch on, Two, two things that come to mind because you mentioned our competency system and there's a huge difference between um, someone who had a training event um, in whatever that was a training event hey we're going to have a three-day leak repair class for our client um, there's a big difference in that and 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 competency in terms of all of the different procedures all of the different leak methods the complexity of a simple one inch 150 pound utility leak versus a 900 pound steam leak on a T that has a pinhole. I mean, the, 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 the leak repair is not no different than welding. Leak repair is not one thing. Leak repair is, you know, by, by my quick estimation, looking at our competency program, there's, more than 40 competencies required for leak repair. And yet uh, a lot of our clients think that, uh, and I think the industry who's outside of being involved in leak repair don't understand the complexities of it. Um, we use a competency system, as you know, and one of the things we did 
um, you know, we're always looking for more competent leak repair people. And so we created a competency survey on leak repair um, about a year or so ago, looking for applicants um, and asking them some basic questions about their leak repair competency. And we had over, over 200, uh, 200 people apply um, saying that they had leak repair competency. And most of them, uh, and these were, uh, you know, mainly, mainly pipe fitters in the industry who've got many years of ex experience working on the systems that we're repairing, but they're working on them from a different perspective. And they, when, when I looked through all the applicants, I've seen it before, was one of the things I've seen. Uh, oh, I've done lots of leak repair because I've torqued up flanges and I've stopped leaks because the mm -hmm. bolts were loose or, or, uh, yeah, I, I've done leak repair, you know, because we've, I've installed lots of different uh, ways to divert the leaks. And, and I think one of the things that I think is important is that, um, you know, that, that really told me that our, our, our industry, a lot of our customer base um, really doesn't know what it takes to do effective leak repair. Because they, you know, when, when you ask, you know, 200 people who are, who are working directly on those systems, they think that leak repair is is what we're describing as a lot of those homemade methods and and that's not what we're talking about no um the the, the other example that I, I think of is in the heavy oil district um uh you have a lot of these oil collection facilities small batteries and uh, a number of years ago um i was called into the medicine hat area and we had uh, five different oil batteries that had uh, they said they had they had a lot of leaks and they needed us to fix some of these oil heaters. And I show up there and they had these sort of uh, six to eight foot high oil heaters, oval flanges that are low pressure because they're just heating oil to uh, as it the heavy oil as it comes out of the ground. And the flanges themselves were like like an inch or less thick and uh, very small bolts and they were using double jacketed gaskets and basically these oval heater uh, flanges were just leaking like sieves, like they're just oil pouring out of them. And their leak mitigation process was a very intricate set of ducts and little collection channels that were feeding into drums. Like literally these little, um, I wouldn't say little, these were, these were professionally made sheet metal channels that were all over the place collecting the oil that was dripping and feeding into barrels that they were then, because they were trying to keep the product. But it was mm. a it was a mess. And, and, th and this oil that's, that's dripping out is not like cool. This is like, it would burn you um, if it, it wasn't at the at an ignition temperature, but uh, it, it, it was quite a sight to see the way that some clients will, will approach that. And in that case, um, we, uh, we didn't, we, we didn't need to do uh, a, a leak repair, leak containment system. They had the ability to shut down. And what we did is we did a leak prevention program where we checked the flatness of the flanges and we machined them. We milled those flanges with large milling machines. And then we used a different gasket design. We designed better bolting, uh, spring washers, uh, like a Belleville style washer. And then we torqued all these flanges and uh, to accommodate, and the, the spring washers were to accommodate the thermal cycling of these heaters. And voila, no more leaks. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, um, 
and 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 no more need for the trays and the barrels and the buckets and and uh, and, and the mess, right? And so, I mean, but you know, those those are those are product and inconvenience and sort of housekeeping issues. But sometimes our clients are facing leaks that are that are much more serious. Absolutely. So before we before you move on, on um, another kind of point on. So we talked about the 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 operator performing leak repair on their own. And, and this is something that we've touched on before. You know, we have um, some YouTube videos on leak repair that, that exist. And I talked about, you know, that that actually can hinder. So there's two things to think about here. Um, you know, when there is a, a failed leak repair attempt, um, and then, you know, cause we see it and now we have to come in and, and look at ways to, to mitigate that leak. We're, we're often having to design around a, a solution that was put in place. So, you know, increasing costs, increasing complexity of that, of, of that repair. We also understand that, you know, sometimes it's just timing wise and, and maybe there's a safety risk and, and the operator has to go out and he has to do something and, and we get that. And so we understand there's those situations, but more often than not, what we see, you know, an earlier call, would save money to our operators rather than attempt that that do-it-yourself style fix. Yeah, I mean some of the some of our most complicated and expensive repairs for clients have been having to, you know, design a much larger leak containment device to encapsulate all of the things they've already tried because you know uh, a uh, a standard practice in leak repairs we're not going to remove previous attempts because we don't know what's underneath there we don't they may have started off with a pinhole and that pinhole is now invisible and we can't see that it has grown and we can't see that there might even be a crack or you know some other um, worsening of, of the condition of, of that system and so um, you know definitely when when we're faced with having to show up and, and, and deal with the leak that already has homemade repairs on top of it, it can make the, uh, the, the more permanent, and I wouldn't, that's the right, wrong word, but the engineered repair, um, the engineered repair more complex and Absolutely. more costly. Yeah. yeah. What, uh, you know, let's talk about steam for a system. Like what are, what are some of the most common processes that we're dealing with and, you know, uh, and how do we approach them? Um, processes, um, sorry, like, like different processes or different like steam processes or, or just kind of in general, I wasn't, I wasn't let's sure. Just, yeah, let's just talk about leak, you know, the processes that we're, that we're often working on that are some of the most common applications for clients. Absolutely. So some of our more common and basic applications, and we refer to it, you know, as a, as a, an online valve packing injection. So most times these are steam and condensate valves and the packing over time wears, um, you know, so through operation of the valve, these could be shut off valves. So just stroking the valve wears on the packing and, and over time they develop a leak. These leaks are not really inside the pressure boundary of the valve. The, they're not, never do we see full pressure on these leaks, but they do require mitigation. It's a, it's a safety hazard for the operator to go out and operate these valves when steam is leaking. And, and there's a cost to leaking steam. So one of the 
more common run-of-the-mill easy activities we do is we, we show up to a facility and use an injection valve. So an engineered injection fitting um, would contain a, a CRN through the province that we're doing the work in. And we would drill into the packing gland area, into the housing of the valve and inject a sealant. We would choose a sealant compatible with the product and specifically the temperature when we're dealing with steam. Um, in most cases on the valve packing, we use a non-curing component. So it would, it would allow the operation of the valve. So you'd have that flexibility in the product. It would, it's able to form a seal, refer to as non-thermal setting component. So it allows for the operation of the valve um, and not crack when you know, things change inside. So that's a very common application for leak repair. Outside of that, we really focus on enclosures. And an enclosure can be installed on any pressure piping, B311, B313, um, in, you know, in, in any facility for that matter, in, you know, in any province. And, and the leaks that we see a lot of times are pinhole leaks. The pinhole leaks are very common um, on the extratos of an elbow or on the weld of a fitting. Those are some very common areas. Tees develop leaks in the body of the T and we design and build enclosures. Um, the new term in the regulatory world is engineered pressure enclosure and EPE. So we would measure and design and register an enclosure for that application. Once it's approved, we would construct, we would manufacture it and then install it. Um, so injecting that enclosure with the appropriate sealant, appropriate compound would suppress that leak and allow for continued operation to the next shutdown. Say those are the two most common areas of, of leak repair. And we're, like I say, we're performing that on steam, we're performing it on condensate leaks, probably the majority. And then we get into, definitely we get into hydrocarbon gases and liquids. Um, there's really no, there's really no end to what we see. The most common would be steam condensate and then hydrocarbons. You mentioned um, non-thermal setting injections into valves. I mean, the way that I describe that to clients, it, you know, in, in non-technical terms, but so they can understand the uh, their ability to use that valve in the future, potentially, is we're effectively in in, in uh, injecting a compressible. Uh, you know, for lack of a better word, a, a ground up version of packing that allows for us to repack that valve uh, with a, a compressible packing that will seal that valve and allow the operator to continue to use it. Is that Absolutely. Fair? Yeah, the, the packing, the original packing, you know, and I'm not a valve expert when, when it comes to those things, but the original packing, you know, will be constructed of graphite, maybe um, there could be silicone in there. there. There are different components in the valve packing. The fibers of the valve packing are used in sealant. Um, they're mixed with different resins and, you know, to, to address different temperatures <coughs> and allow us to inject them. So kind of change the, the chemistry or more so the physical condition of the packing into an injectable paste type substance versus having it in a, you know, a more hardened compressible form like a rope um, that we see, but it is the same component. Right. Now, earlier you talked about the issue that clients have where 
they have an isolation valve and we're having to repair the isolation valve. And you mentioned the valve packing, but if it's a gate valve and it's the isolation valve, just talk a little bit about a gate valve injection, injecting the gate. So injecting the gate, yeah. And there's two ways um, when we look at injecting the gate, there's, there's really two things we can do. There's, we could look at an upstream line block or a seat injection. So both require, when, when we look at a gate valve, if your gate is, is stuck in the open position, um, we're not gonna have much success there. The, there there's just too much, uh, too much volume of, of water, or sorry, process flowing through that gate that we're gonna be able to mitigate it. So we look at situations where the gate is closed, but not functioning properly. Maybe there was some debris that, that maybe the gate got bent. You know, there could be a number of different reasons. So we're looking at a situation where the gate is approximately an eighth of an inch away from closing. In those situations, we can inject a compound either upstream of the gate we can do that on the hub of the fitting on the gate valve. Sometimes there's, there's extra material depending on the style. So we can inject that in the body of the gate valve or even upstream into the piping using an injection fitting. So we can install an injection fitting on the piping, similar to what you would see in, in, a, in a hot tap scenario um, and inject sealant and allow the process to carry that sealant to the gate. Once the sealant hits the gate, it's able to withstand that one-eighth gap and isolate the process. That's one way to do it. The other way to do it is to direct this, is to inject the sealant directly into the gate. So we typically do that and, and the process you do it will change depending on the size of the valve, but you would inject, you would install an injector at 12 o'clock or sorry, at six o'clock, at three o'clock and at nine o'clock and you would inject sealant into the seat area from the six o'clock position. And then you would monitor the sealant and when it starts to remove or when it starts to come out from the, this, this three and the nine position, then you would start to close those and you would, you would know that then your seat is full um, and you would monitor isolation that way. So those are two ways that we can aid the isolation of a system when you have a partially closed valve just not functioning 100%. Sometimes those two mitigations can be coupled up with other uh, other services like depending on the on the process stream uh, like a freeze plug to uh, to help the client get an isolation. Absolutely and, and that's a very common instance of when we would do that. Uh, freeze, line freezing is an excellent use of a cold work isolation. <laughs> There's been another pun for today when we're talking about um, line freezing and, and cold work. Um, but what that, what we, when I say cold work, we're eliminating the need to do a hot tap and line stop by, by, using, by, by using line freezing and then eliminating the need for welding. So with a line freeze, we need zero flow you essentially, you need a full, you need full, you need your pipe to be full of water and for that not to be flowing, installing an external freeze jacket on the piping and flowing nitrogen through that, reducing the temperature of the process, you will eventually create a block in the system by means of a, an ice plug 
And one of the, you know, one of the biggest failures of ice plugs is flowing water. And if your isolation valve is passing just a little, then you will not achieve that ice plug. And that's where that seed injection or upstream line block really comes in. You know, I remember years ago um, doing a, uh, an eight inch freeze on a bitumen line. Now, obviously you can't freeze bitumen in the traditional way of creating an ice plug, but you can create a solid slug of tar that will allow for you to uh, create an isolation. And um, the client guaranteed us that there was no open bypass valves. There was, we had zero flow and we were, we were pumping liquid nitrogen for 36 hours. And they kept saying, no, just keep going. We need, you know, we, we, we got, we got to, we got to give this, we got to give this our best shot. We got to give this our best shot. And a, an operator, one of the plant operators who had been off shift for 48 hours came on shift at uh, on night shift. And he came over checking out uh, what, what was going on in this part of his plant. And I said to him, I said, look, everyone tells me that there are no small bypasses anywhere can you think of anywhere where there might be an open valve that is causing us to not get a freeze? And he said, I know exactly where there's an open valve. <laughs> oh my God. And, and I know exactly where there's an open valve and let walk over here with me now. And let's, let's check it out. I bet you any money that there was like a, it was like a one inch uh, bypass that was a couple hundred meters away on this line. And it was causing flow. And uh, we, he and I went over there, he turned the valve and, uh, and closed it and put a lock on it and locked that valve. And I kid you not, 36 minutes later, we had frost lines across the entire, yeah. <laughs> the, the entire freeze. And we were quickly then able to uh, confirm an isolation and, um, and, uh, and do a, a downstream valve change out. And, but we had burned through two tankers of nitrogen. Wow. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, it, it, it's so, sometimes when you're, uh, when you're doing these kinds of jobs, you got to get the, uh, the, 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 the plant operator who's been there for 15 or 20 years and just knows every nook and cranny of their process lines so that they can figure out, yeah, that, that's, that's where we, that's where we can fix this and, uh, and achieve what we're trying to achieve. So I've got a lot of stories like that with, with, freeze plugs that uh, that you know we're just not taking and then instantly took as soon as uh, an experienced plant operator could find that one place where they had a bypass absolutely and people don't realize I know this isn't the line freeze um, topic today but people don't realize how little flow can interrupt or prevent the freeze from forming <laughs> and, and kind of to think about it to kind of frame it a little bit sometimes it's just convection current Sometimes yeah. it's just a difference in temperature causing, um, you know, causing that internal flow, convection flow across the plug that will prevent a, a freeze from forming. It doesn't take much. Yeah, I've got another story about a convection flow that was too close to a T that they wouldn't listen to me. And they wanted me to pump nitrogen for four days. And I finally had to go talk to the maintenance manager and say, look, I'll just give you a discount at line stop on this thing. Like, like let's just do a line stop on it next week and we'll, yeah. We'll, we'll stop wasting your money. And, uh, but, you know, I, I, but I've heard, I've had, had hundreds of conversations over the years where I say, is there zero flow? And they'll go, yes, there's next to no flow. I said, no, 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 no. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't say next to no flow. 
<clears throat> I need confirmation there's no flow if we're going to get a freeze. If not, we're just going to be literally turning uh, liquid uh, nitrogen into gaseous nitrogen and spent and and helping the atmosphere replenish its its nitrogen because it it, it isn't going to do anything other than burn a lot of time and money. Yeah. But uh, anyway, let's we'll have a different conversation and a deep dive on freeze plugs in another another episode. But uh, the one in the interesting thing about all of these technologies, whether it's it's varieties of leak repair or injecting valves and isolating valves or creating freeze plugs or hot taps is all of these solutions can be blended together to help the client accomplish the leak mitigation or the isolation and the permanent change out of, of a valve or of a, of a, a piping component in a variety of different ways. If you, if you have that, if you have all those tools in your wheelhouse, then you can prevent, you can, you can present your client with more, optimized solutions than if you're just a leak repair provider or you're just a hot tap provider. And there are, there are some great, uh, great, great companies out there that do just leak repair or do just line stopping and they do great work. Um, but a lot of the time our, our clients requirements are more complex than having only needing only one technology to solve what they're trying to accomplish. Right? Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit, about what clients are normally asking you when you're approaching leak repair, when they are wanting to learn about leak repair or they're considering uh, a leak repair application, this sort of client frequently asked questions. So, you know, first off, um, you know, what's the primary hazards? What are the, what are the hazards around leak repair? And, and you know, that is the most common question and, and sidetrack for a little bit. And, and if I, if you might need to pull me back on, here, but uh, the very, you know, the, the thing that they'll ask right away is, is it safe? And we get individuals at certain facilities who are not experienced with leak repair. And, and this is where, when we talked previously talk about the competency a little bit, it's more than the activity. It's much more than performing the activity. You can train somebody on how to install an enclosure. Um, but it's the awareness of all the hazards and the potential hazards, the ones that are not seen, that really make this a safe activity. So, you know, the primary hazards we encounter, we're working on live systems. And not only are we working on live systems, we're working on live systems that have failed in some capacity. It has a thinning wall, and now that piping is compromised. Or there is an active leak, and that active leak could contain you know, it could contain low pressure, low temperature steam um, and condensate. Sometimes it could contain potable water and, and those things are not that big of a risk. Sometimes it can contain something like 900 pound steam you mentioned previously or some hazardous chemicals. So the biggest hazards that we run into is, you know, the pressurized system and then the process that's actually leaking. So our approach to those things, you know, very, very simple line of fire, you know, never standing directly in front of a leak, always having the appropriate PPE for the situation, which goes back to job planning, goes back to job hazard analysis and, you know, performing, having the experience to perform those field level hazard assessments on the application, you know, specifically on the application, not in general on, on leak repair, but specifically on this application 
where you can determine that I'm going to encounter this type of process. It's at this pressure, this temperature, and these are the mitigations that I have in place through my PPE and other engineering controls that we can mitigate these risks. So definitely the biggest question we get is, is it safe? And we actually had a, a kind of a quick story. Um, and everyone's entitled to their opinion, and you know this, and sometimes we agree with it, and sometimes we don't. We had somebody give us a poor rating on a customer satisfaction survey because they deemed us as working unsafe. And when we questioned, because that, you know, that's something that's very, very near and dear to our heart, something that we take very seriously. So we investigated. And the response was, no, no, I was very impressed with how your technicians managed to you know, execute their work in that environment. I just think leak repair in, in itself is unsafe. So it wasn't <laughs> that we were being unsafe. The nature of the work we were performing was unsafe. And that it's viewed that way by a lot of operators. They, right. Once they see a leak, they don't want to touch it. And a lot of them will back away from it. So you know, kind of at the risk of repeating myself, we've got pressurized systems, active leaks, temperature is a big concern, flammable, flammable service is a big concern, um, and maybe we can touch on that later, and, and or, you know, potentially um, hazardous chemicals in the line, and, and those are definitely the, the main things that we encounter and, and the top question that we receive. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the kinds of... Um planning um the, the the risk hazard analysis the the procedures the the levels of ppe personal protective equipment that we incorporate into a job plan to perform leak repair are uh heroic and um you know uh, while an operator might deem you know a a a component that doesn't leak is safe and a component that is leaking is unsafe and therefore working on it is unsafe. Uh, it sort of in general terms, you know, we're the, we're the, you know, we're not dealing with fires, but we are, we are using similar uh, levels of safety and control that, you know, people in the firefighting industry use in terms of air and heat suits and cooling vests and respirators and a whole variety of, and that's, those are just the PPE, even before stepping back from that, the, the, the very intricate procedures we use to mitigate risk are, are, are at, a, at a much higher level than when you're installing a component, uh, the, the components, like if you're a pipe fitter or a boilermaker and you're installing those components, what we're doing is um, much more intricate. Mm -hmm. much more intricate yeah. and it all, it all starts with the hazard assessment and you know we do different levels of hazard assessment we do a you know job <coughs> hazard assessment before we mobilize you know we collect all the data we understand that application fully you know not a stone left unturned when it comes to understanding the application we're going in so we develop an in-house job uh, in-house we develop before we mobilize a job hazard assessment with the help of a hse advisor and then when we get to the job site it's another level of hazard assessment when we actually assess the physical conditions and it, a lot of work going into making sure that our team can do this safely 
And, you know, and the risks that are involved in leak repair are often deceiving um, from the lay person point of view. Um, they might think that a steam leak is uh, riskier than say um, working on a boiler feed water um, or on a blind flange um, versus, you know, a tea, but, you know, you know some of the some of the the, the 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 biggest failures, catastrophic failures that I've heard about in the industry, have been in poor risk mitigation around dealing with leaking flanges on boiler feed water, which is not as hot as steam, um, or on blind flanges. Where and just just talk about a couple of those kinds of uh, repairs for a minute, and 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 why those are potentially more. Uh, need more more procedural analysis and planning than other types of leaks because I, I when I think about doing uh, leak mitigation on a blind flange or in boiler feed water, my spidey senses instantly go up and now it's a critical job. Yeah, and I, some of the deceiving part, um, if we're, I think we're on the same page here, when when we talk about you know steam and, and boiler feed water, you know different you know, stages in the process. So when we have boiler feed water, um, in, in a lot of cases, there's, there's chemicals added to that boiler feed water to treat the boiler. Um, so there's a lot of things happening inside a boiler, you know, in terms of, uh, in terms of creating, you know, the, the right steam or in terms of boiler maintenance, you know, preventive maintenance on your boiler. So there's a lot of chemical additives that go in the boiler feed water. And, and they're not always mentioned on the data request form that we would use. So yes, we're dealing with boiler feed water. There's not a breakdown of the boiler treatment process the, or the water treatment process that goes into that. So very common, you'll see a different grade of stud in a, boil, in a system that is involved with boiler feed water to help counteract that. So you might have a B7M stud instead of your standard B7, or maybe even get into some stainless steel but what happens with the blind flange and other, uh, you know, other components, maybe it's a valve that, you know, has um, a, a top hat style. Um, a bonnet. A bonnet. Yeah, I, I, I blanked on that one. Um, <laughs> anyway, so in those practice. situations where you, you, you think you might have just a standard leak, what, what could be happening is you could be losing integrity of your studs. And that's something that you need to be able to recognize immediately. You start injecting against a blind um, and you're actually putting tensile stress on those studs. If there's, you know, something, and the, what happens is stress corrosion cracking and, and stress corrosion cracking is, is happens, you know, the, the sour service of the, of the boiler feed water or the chemical that's used in treating that boiler feed water is affecting the studs. And when we inject sealant, the sealant is putting that axial force because it's spreading out between two components. So we're injecting sealant into a gap and that sealant is moving through, and in some cases, you know, moving through a narrow, an eighth of an inch, a 16th of an inch gap between two pieces of steel. And that's causing the, the wanting that bonnet to lift. And then it's up to the studs to hold that in place, which is their job. But if they've been compromised, 
the stress corrosion cracking can occur when the tensile stress is applied to the studs and then you have a projectile. Right. So what, what may seem like a, a small leak in the boiler feed, maybe the, by the time it's leaking, the temperature of the process is not even that hot, has a lot more cause for concern than your standard steam leak, even if that steam leak is 600, 900 pounds steam. And so you're, you're, you're uh, in addition to being our general manager, you're also uh, our technical director uh, at Innovator. What are the additional procedures that we often look at when we're talking about those kinds of situations, bonnets, blind flanges, boiler feed water flanges, where we intuitively automatically look for stud issues as part of our planning and engineering in that what, what are what are ways that we are incorporating controls to approach those leaks because maybe maybe i don't want to scare our audience to say well you just can't fix those things because of the risk we have procedures and other engineering controls we're putting in place specifically for those applications right absolutely so and that starts just like everything with innovator that starts with understanding the problem so it starts with data collection and we've developed a very specific form for jointed connection or, or joint or bolt. Um, we, we've, we've got a critical task form for these types of applications. So whether it's for a bonnet or whether, for, whether it's for a blind flange, we have a very specific form. And that'll take you through a process where first, you know, okay, how long has this component been in service? How long has, had, how long has it been leaking? Then we get into potentially performing NDE on the studs. So you can perform a UT um, ultrasonic testing on the studs to determine if there's any circumferential cracking. You might not be able to pick up any longitudinal cracking with that UT, but you can definitely pick up any circumferential cracking or defects in the studs. So those, those are two things that an operator, that's something that an operator could do um, before Innovator would mobilize. Once we understand the stud integrity, there's, there's two options we can go from there. Uh, on flanges that have eight bolts or more, we could do a hot bolt out procedure where we exchange the, the bolts one at a time with some new bolts that with confirmed integrity to then we can button that back up and perform the leak repair if the leak repair is even required. Um, chances are the leak repair may be required in the first place due to a compromised gasket or a stud and by using the new studs, you might have fixed that leak. So that's one option. The other option and the most common option, the safest option is to go with an engineered strong back or C-clamps. Um, not or C-clamps, just kind of an interchangeable word, strong back and C-clamps, depending on the application. So we would look at the, we would look at the separating force, um, the force that the studs were designed to withhold, to withstand, and develop a strong back, design and install a strong back to take up that force. That way we can perform the leak repair without any risk of that flange or bonnet separating from the component and becoming the projectile. And just so we don't confuse any of our listeners who might also use homemade methods, we're not talking about going to home hardware and buying a C-clamp and clamping the flange. We're talking about an engineered, an engineered evaluation of the loads and an engineered solution. Absolutely. We, we look at the separating force and you got to look at it from, you look at it from a design pressure perspective. So 
when the system was designed, what was the pressure, you know, what's the design pressure and what would be the effect of the component seeing that full design pressure, which it doesn't typically, there's, there's a reduced operating, but we evaluate it based on full design pressure. Also the separating force caused by the sealant. So the injection of the sealant itself adds an extra stress to the flange. We incorporate, we calculate that and design a custom strong back scenario. The strongbacks could be two, four, six, eight, depending on, you know, or more, depending on how big the flange is and the force required that we're trying to mitigate for separation. But it's a very custom event. Um, the strongbacks themselves are not a pressure containing component. So you might not always see them with the CRN, but in a lot of cases, we register them as part of the overall repair. And then therefore it would be just one solution, an enclosure and the strongbacks all registered together. Awesome. Let's talk about flammable. So, you know, we talked a lot about steam, but you know, there, you know, our, many of our clients have either uh, have toxic and flammable services and they leak too. How do we perform hot work um, in these flammable leaks? Like what are we, what are we doing differently to uh, mitigate risk there? Sure. So I, I can talk about the, a lot of the traditional ways to mitigate flammable. We've, you know, we've taken a different stance when it comes to flammable. So this is an online leak repair. This is just in general. And the best thing to do when, you know, you have a flammable service and how to mitigate that is to eliminate the flammable part, you know, eliminate the spark, right? So we have, we focus on not necessarily you know, you can perform leak repair. One of the methods that we can get into is, is a purge. So you could perform leak repair and have a nitrogen or a steam purge directly on the area where you're working to suppress, suppress any type of spark that could develop. But that's not where we start. We start with, hey, let's not do the hot work at all. And let's, let's talk about a different method. Let's talk about composite repair. Let's talk about friction forge bonding. Let's talk about add-on gate valve, all things that you've covered, you know, in previous episodes of your podcast, but that's where we want to start. We don't want to immediately jump into how do we mitigate this flammable work. Let's talk about a situation where we don't even have to consider it is, is where we, is where I would start. Um, when we do have to perform leak repair uh, in flammable service, there's a couple of different things that you can do. Obviously it starts with a detailed job hazard assessment, like we talked about before. And then we get into some things like non-sparking tools, brass components, brass peening chisels. Um, we get into grounding our, grounding our components. So if we're using, if we're drilling into a, a pressure system to install an injector, we, we ground our components to, to help mitigate any sparking issues. And, and then from there, it's a lot of it is, is about setup and process, having that steam purge, Having, you know, and then at the end, you can't, you know, you can't, if you can't eliminate it, then you always plan for, you know, worst case scenarios and, and you, you have very intricate um, emergency plans and routes in place for when you're performing that type of work. But very, very rarely would we ever get there. Okay. What about the clients need to shut down or, uh, or reduce pressure for us to do what we're talking about here? That, that's a good one. That's, a, that's actually a common question. Um, 
And the answer is for most leak repair activities, when we're talking about, you know, specifically online leak repair activities, not only, you know, do you not have to shut down, we don't want you to shut down. We want to seal the leak at your pressure. The pressure that you're going to operate at is the pressure we want to seal it at. And that gives us the confidence that the leak has been addressed appropriately. If we mobilize to a facility and there's no leak, um, they're like, yeah, yeah, we shut it down for you. We just want you to install your enclosure and inject it. Um, then we lose that indication when it's been effective. We have different things that we can follow in terms of injection pressure, amount of sealant, sealant extrusion, where and how it's coming out and how fast it's coming out. There's, there's a lot of tells in the process that tell you when an enclosure is full, but the best one is mitigating the leak and stopping the leak at that pressure. If we stop a leak at 10 PSI and the next day the client goes to 100 PSI, maybe that leak repair wasn't sufficient for 100 PSI. It was only sufficient for 10 PSI. So the best way for us to seal a leak and then have the confidence that it's the right solution is to do it at full pressure. Makes sense to me. I mean, I, I anytime I've been involved and the customer said, hey, we've reduced pressure, we've, we've, we've shut down the leak, you know, I instantly tell them, I'm probably gonna have to come back. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, 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 I can do all the installation, but in order to guarantee you that this leak has stopped, you're gonna have the pressure back up, get me up the temperature, temperature and pressure so I can know that the leak has stopped. Almost every time that I've been in that situation, I've had to come back and revisit the, uh, the leak when it's in full operating. Because you know, the customer, our job is to get the customer to be able to operate back at full temperature and pressure. And so we need to be able to repair it, even though it may, you know, from a, from a lay person standpoint, well, we want it to reduce the temperature and pressure so it would be easier for you. But, uh, or, or less, you know, from their perspective, less hazardous or, or more convenient, but it actually, we want to, we want to fix the leak. We don't want to fix the, just, you know, we're not fixing the component. We're, as you put it earlier, we're not repairing the leaking source. We're suppressing the leak. And so we need to be able to see the leak and work with the leak in its full capacity so that we can mitigate it for the client appropriately. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, what about sealants? So obviously there are hundreds, if not thousands of different process streams and metal, you know, chemistries and, and varieties of process streams that, that clients are facing. So, you know, do we have one type of sealant that we pump into everything or is there a, a whole uh, other, other realm there? I wish. Wouldn't that be something? <laughs> yeah, maybe in the future we'll get uh, we'll get some magical nanobot sealant that can fix anything, right? Yeah, there you go. Um, no, there's different types. Different. So sealant is the sealant product range is very vast. Numerous manufacturers manufacturing different types ranges of sealant. Um, the ones that we stock and, you know, what we typically see, we go through a couple of different ranges. We have, I mentioned earlier, thermal setting components and non-thermal setting components. So basically you have a curing sealant that requires a full cure of a hardened product 
So it goes in soft and then with temperature it sets and becomes firm. And it, that's, how it, re, that's how, how it develops a seal. So it requires temperature in the line to create a seal. And we can, you know, some of those products will cure at 250 degrees Fahrenheit all the way up to, you know, six, seven, 800 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, we have other products like we use in the valve packings that I mentioned earlier that are non-thermosetting. So these types of products that use graphite fibers, um, you'll get those up to 1200 degrees Fahrenheit and, and, and higher with the right application. So you would look at, you know, you, for steam sealants, you would look at a thermo setting, a non-thermo setting. And that's when you really don't worry too much about chemical compatibility. And your main driving factor in selecting a sealant is application and is temperature. Then there's, there's the other, you know, there's, there's a whole other realm when we get into chemicals. There, there's lines of sealants that are created to specifically handle hydrocarbons and, and how those interact with sealants. These are designed as both thermal setting and non-thermal setting, um, typically in a lower temperature range. And you can even get into some other, you know, strong acids and strong, strong solvent type sealants. Those are not as common. So for us, we, we, we typically target a temperature range and then have a range of, of hydrocarbon sealants. Another type to consider is your more rubber sealants. So you'll have your chemical sealants that you'll use, your chemically compatible sealants that you'll use. And then when we get into some steam and water, maybe some line block scenarios, there, there's rubber sealants. Um, and these ones, if you see them cure, you can cure them to you know, replicate almost like a hockey puck is what some of these would cure to. But those, that's kind of like the main range that, that we look at for, for sealants. But we do have some specialties and you know, our clients have some unique situations as well. <clears throat> so um, what about alkyl units? And they have um, uh, a, lot of, a lot of acids. Hydrofluoric acid is the one that comes to mind. Are we capable of working in alkyl units? A absolutely. You know, there's, um, there's a full, periodic table style sealant comparison that you can run and every you know chemical not every chemical every chemical that i've encountered in a processing facility is listed and you can easily go through a compatibility chart and select the sealant specifically for your chemical and for your temperature alkyl you're working in high acid environments is not something that's new to us um, those are usually ordered specifically for cases, but definitely something that we can handle. Now, another area, I mean, all of our, <clears throat> all of our clients, uh, a lot of our oil and gas clients <clears throat> have a need for hydrogen and nitrogen and a variety of other, um, other feed uh, and supporting feedstocks. A lot of the time, those are, those are facilities that are, sometimes operated by other operators who are operating a hydrogen reform or nitrogen and hydrogen plants uh, in conjunction or in partnership. So what about cryogenics? Uh, you know, there's definitely cryogenic sealants available as well. Um, you, can, you can perform leak repair in, in a cryogenic environment. 
Um, obviously, you're considering at that point, you're considering, you know, MDMT of your material. A lot of design considerations that come into play that are different from non-cryogenic, but there are cryogenic sealants available. And, and something that I didn't touch on that's also very, very applicable to the industry and to our business is your nuclear grade sealants. Um, and these have gone through additional testing and scrutiny to be pre-selected as approved for nuclear facilities. So I, you know, to touch on all the sealants, I don't think we get there, but, but definitely there's a wide range cryogenic, nuclear, high temperature, low temperature, chemical compatibility, hydrocarbons, they're, they're all covered. Well, we've covered oil and gas, we've covered cryogenics, we've, you mentioned nuclear, and obviously we perform, uh, we, we have clients in the nuclear space and, and perform leak repair inside of nuclear power plants regularly. Uh, one area we didn't touch on that I, I want to make sure for some of our audience we cover is, is what about pulp and paper and you've got all those corrosive liquors. How do, what do we do there? Um, it, very similar to you know how we would work in uh, in that alky unit that you referred to. We have sealants, and I, I don't um, I don't know the the exact product number that we use on some of those sealants, but the process works the same way. If we're dealing with some sort of a a stripping chemical used in that industry, we you know we we typically ask our clients to hey, what's this process stream made of? Because we might get, um, we might get from pulp and paper, we may get black liquor, white liquor, green liquor, um, you know, and those are common terms. And those, we've seen those before. So we have experience with them and we know what to do. But in some cases we ask our, we ask our owners or operators, hey, do you have an M M MSDS or an SDS on that component? And with that SDS, we can take that and specifically match a sealant to do the job. Perfect. <clears throat> so one thing I heard throughout this entire conversation was analysis, engineering, evaluation. How important is it for us to get data from our clients? It's the most important thing. We're, and this is where it really, this is a big difference. Um, so leak repair in itself, it's about getting, you know, understanding the root. We're not fixing the leak. We're not, we're not understanding why something leaked because we're going to fix that component. We're understanding why it leaked so we can put a solution together to prevent it from leaking in the future. If it leaked because of vibration, we need to know that. So we use a non-curing sealant that can withstand some of that vibration and not crack once it, once it hardens. So collecting data is all about understanding the real problem. If we get a call to perform leak repair, hey, I want you to come out and inject this. And we blindly went out and we injected it. Um, we're not understanding what their real situation is. We're not understanding the right solution for the application. We're just, you know, we're just doing what somebody told us to do. By collecting the right data up front, we can ensure the solution, you know, for, well, first and foremost, by collecting the right data, we can ensure the safety of our workers and the safety of the workers in that facility because we know the solution is the right solution for that application. Yeah, I mean, this, these are specific custom procedures for each component because every single leak 
is different um, uh, because of vibration, thermal cycling, chemistry, metallurgy, uh, and the and the nature of the defect. We need highly collaborative clients. You know, and, and in an ideal situation, they you know because I've I've seen this a lot, and 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 e even internally coaching our own people that you know getting fifty percent of the data from the client is not what we need. We need we have a data sheet that we're looking to collect information on, and sometimes multiple data sheets uh, that we need one hundred percent of that information so that we can design the right solution. Um, so it's highly collaborative. Um, and an ideal client is is working with us. They're not just saying, hey, figure this out and fix it. They might be, you know, having conversations with us to tell us sort of the history of how this started and got worse. They might be giving us pictures. They might, you know, there might be uh, either isometric drawings and data sheets from the design of their facility in addition to them um, filling out our data sheet or answering questions for us so we can fill out the data sheet. But it's really important that we get accurate. We're not guessing. We don't want guesses on metallurgy, temperature, pressure, process stream. Those are, are pretty critical things in, in your team's process for, for designing the right solution. Absolutely. And I'm gonna, you know, speak um, speak about the team here. And I'm very confident saying that we've got we've got the best leak repair team. Uh, what I feel is the best leak repair team. Um, and when we send that team out to execute leak repair, if we're not setting them up with the right solution, um, it doesn't matter how good they are. It, it doesn't matter if, if, you know, if they're going to install an enclosure that's not designed for that application, it's going to leak. And it doesn't matter how, what level of competency or skill that individual has if they're going out with the solution that, you know, the wrong solution. Speaking of our team, and, and th this is a little bit of, of chest puffing because I know we're real proud of this, but uh, everything we talked about here is about safety. And we've talked about all the things that we do to ensure the safety of our people and the client and the way we design the work. What kind of safety results have you gotten? Um, our safety results are perfect and they're, they're not great. They're, they're not good. They're not good. Or they're not, you know, like in very close to they're they're, they're perfect. Um, we have an excellent or a, a perfect safety record from, from a, from a, um, a, a TRIR perspective. We, we've had uh, zero lost time incidents at innovator for eight years now. Um, our team all of our teams, specifically our leak repair team, it participates in our program 100% without question. They, they are very adamant on ensuring all of our safety aspects are, are captured. All of our leading measure activities, our BBOs, our FLRAs, toolbox talks, all impact safety, all of those items are incorporated into every activity we do and leak repair is no different. Um, going back to that one individual who, who said we were unsafe because we were doing an unsafe activity. Well, you know, we've proven that it can be done safely with the right amount of planning, the right amount of, and, and not just the right amount of planning. When you have that safety culture that everyone focuses, everyone buys into, 
there's, there's no reason that any activity can't be performed safely consistently. And that's the key is you can go out and perform a very dangerous leak repair safely once, but it's to do it consistently over the last eight years in a high risk environment and not have those incidents. Um, that, like you said, that's something we're extremely proud of. I want to, I want to just clarify something. You said we haven't had a lost time incident in eight years. Uh, we've never had a lost time incident in the company. What we haven't had in eight years is any recordable injuries. Um, so the, the total recordable injury rate or TRIR, we've maintained a consistent 0, 0.0 recordable injury rate. Um, and the last time we had a recordable uh, was on May 12th, 2012. And we have not had one since. And all those eight years have been a massive endeavor around safety culture and creating uh, employee dashboards with leading indicators to really drive behavior and heighten awareness and create a, a high sense of personal accountability. Our, our system is, you know, we'll, we'll do another episode on it, but it's, uh, it's state of the art in terms of using digital technology and real-time reporting so that we as a whole company and every individual can see everything that's going on in, in real time effectively. Um, and what's happening in safety. I, it's probably the thing that I'm most proud of in the company is that we've, we have, we have never hurt anybody. Um, and we've had this, this long track record of doing all the right things as a team so that no one ever gets hurt. So I'm super, super, super proud of that. W one last thing on leak repair, Chris, and we're going to wrap up our conversation on leak repair. Uh, what happens when a leak reoccurs? We've, We've suppressed the leak and um, something happens and, uh, and, and, it, and that, that leak suppression starts to weep or, or, uh, or start to release product again. What, what do we do there? So first off, that happens. And, and you know, it, we've been in the industry for, for a long time and despite sometimes best efforts, best plans, leaks can reoccur. There, there's definitely reasons why they reoccur. Some of those reasons are start up and shut down. So taking a pressurized system that's easily suppressing a leak at 500 PSI, shutting it down 24 hours later in the middle of winter, starting it back up again. There's so much expansion and contraction that happens in that event that some sealant may be cracked, some sealant may be displaced, the enclosure and the piping may not expand and contract at the same rate. And therefore you might have a little bit of a gap on a perimeter and there, there's a leak. Um, so, so that happens. One of the great things about leak repair is they can always be suppressed again. So once we have that leak, specifically we'll say in an enclosure, we can, we can show back up and uh, we, we can suppress it again for you. It's not an issue. Um, one of the things that we, you know, we really spent a lot of time analyzing and focusing on is, and we always do this, it's part of our culture, is how can we be better? What can we do better? What can we do different than the industry and than our competitors? So, you know, you've heard me talk about a lot about how much planning goes into some of these repairs. So when we take an engineered repair, 
and we're confident that or we're working with that collaborative client and we're confident that we've got the information we need and we design that enclosure, we know it's going to work. We have the utmost confidence that that enclosure is going to, is going to hold. So we do what we call a pay once promise for our clients. And, and that, that's not a guarantee that your leak will, that your leak will never reoccur and that this enclosure is going to last for forever or more specifically for the one to two years that the CRN was valid for. It means that you've already paid for this service. You followed our process. You've answered all our questions and you've been collaborative the entire way. If that leaks for you, again, we got to come out and we got to fix it, but we're going to do that for free. We're going to do that on our dime because you allowed us to perform our service exactly the way we envisioned it. And we stand behind our service. We stand behind our products. There, there are always a few exceptions. And I mentioned a little bit about the startup and shutdown expansion and contraction temperatures. You know, if, uh, if, uh, if there were some other situations, you know, maybe a line was injected with a different chemical or they changed the process stream. There's obviously things that are out of our control, but in, uh, in the general sense, if we follow our process with a client that allows us to do so, we offer them that commitment that they only need to pay for their service once, but we will always come out and re-inject it for them. Right. So the pay once promise is the way I, the way I think about the pay once promise is it it's, it's cause I've had, I've had, you know, we know all of our friends and colleagues in the industry who also perform leak repair, um, uh, you know, they're competitors, but we know them all. And we, many of us over the years have worked with some of them. And when, when, when our competitors hear about our pay once promise, they always instantly say to me, well, you can't guarantee that it won't leak again. And I no. say, absolutely no. And that's not what we're doing. It's not about guaranteeing that it won't leak again. It's guaranteeing that the customer won't have the pay again. And, and, and that's, that's a commercial piece, but what that does inside of our business is it changes the mindset of how we plan because we have skin in the game. We, we partner with our client to suppress that leak and we have just as much ownership and accountability of that leak suppression as they do because we have all agreed on how we're going to do the work and we've agreed on how we're going to address it commercially. And once we say it's, done that it's the leak is suppressed if it leaks again we're going to come back on our dime and pay for it it's about it, it's about changing the level of personal accountability and mindset because if we know we have skin in the game we are going to do things right throughout the entire process to make sure that we're putting the best solution um, forth for our clients so that because we both now own that leak and I, that, that's what the pay once promise is about. It's about creating an ownership and accountability and a mindset shift in all of the people from our engineers to our technicians who are doing the installation that our goal here, the outcome is a suppressed leak. And to, 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 to kind of really drive that home, we put, we put commercial responsibility on the line for it. Absolutely. Okay, Chris, any final thoughts on, on uh, what clients should be thinking about if they want to uh, reach out to you and your team to talk about leak repair? You know, where do they start? 
Well, um, there's a number of places, number of ways to start. Uh, one of the, you know, any, any form of social media, you're, you're going to see Innovator um, represented. So we have a lot of facets, you know, for, our for, for individuals or for prospective clients to reach us. Um, we have an office in Edmonton, office in Fort McMurray, Sarnia and Hamilton in Ontario. Um, we perform leak repair throughout the entire country, not just in those locations, um, but those are our main operating offices. So we have, um, we have uh, any number of, of, of dedicated sources where you can reach out and, and, and talk to us. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to fumble through this, Don, and, and actually I'm going to push this back to you because you, you're, the, you're the lead on this stuff. So I'm going to, I'm going to flip the script on you a little bit and, 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 and ask you to, uh, to elaborate on, on the best way for clients to reach us. No problem. I, uh, that is the nature of a podcast is we've got to play off each other. So uh, a couple of things I'll, I'll point out. One is that we have, uh, we've talked about CRNs a little bit. We didn't cover, but we have, we have stock CRNs. We have, we have registered catalogs of fittings and we've registered those in every jurisdiction in the country. So we're in, uh, we have these four offices that Chris mentioned, but we have uh, design registrations in every jurisdiction in Canada. We also have quality programs registered in all of the major jurisdictions uh, with in Ontario with TSSA, with uh, TSAS in Saskatchewan, with ABSA in Alberta, and most recently, with uh, we have our quality uh, qualifications in British Columbia and in the other jurisdictions uh, we have CRNs and we often will get our quality program recognized uh, for the work that we do if we go into a different jurisdiction so we have our customers covered from a quality and an engineering perspective coast to coast um, our four offices as Chris mentioned uh, we have a national uh, 1-800 number uh, or a, uh, it's not a 1-800 number, it is a uh, toll-free number, which is 855-436-4666. You can go to our website, which is uh, innovatorind.com. Uh, and obviously, we are very present on, um, on social media. And uh, the, the primary place to find us and find any of us would be uh, on LinkedIn. You can message uh, any of us on LinkedIn. So we, uh, we operate 24 seven, um, including Christmas day, even though some of our people uh, don't necessarily like when they're on a leak repair job on Christmas day, but we have, we have, uh, we have responded in, in it, specifically over Christmas for some of our clients uh, when they need us. So we, uh, we, we operate uh, all year long. So it never seems uh, to fail. Uh, it never seems. You know, there's always there's always a leak on Christmas Eve. It's yeah. uh, it's yeah. almost uh, it's almost guaranteed. So, all right, Chris. Well, I want to thank you for uh, for joining me on on this on our Innovator podcast, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Excellent. Thank you very much, Tom. And there you have it. I truly do hope that you all enjoyed this episode of the Industrial Innovators Podcast. Definitely don't forget to leave a like and a rating. It certainly helps us out a lot. And please do not forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. We will be having more coming out with Chris Coombs himself, so definitely stay tuned for those. But with all of that out of the way, I thank you all so much for listening once again, and we will see you next time.